0: Welcome to the Royal Society of Medicine's Trauma and Orthopaedic Section podcast. My name is Akib Khan. I am an orthopaedic registrar on the RSM Council, and I will be your host through this series of podcasts. We will feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. These speakers have all contributed at one of our events. For more details on our events, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine website or on socials using the handle rsmortho. Welcome to this episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Orthopaedic Section podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Fergal Monsell, who is a consultant paediatric orthopaedic surgeon at the Royal Hospital for Children Bristol since 2005. He has a broad-based practice with a special interest in the management of patients with congenital limb abnormality and deformity following trauma and septicemia. He is active in all aspects of paediatric trauma. He is involved in education at all levels, is visiting professor at Cardiff University, director of the Avon Center for Musculoskeletal Education and projector at the Grand Academy. He has an active clinical and science-based research portfolio and is widely published. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Fantastic to have you here. And you've just delivered a really uh, um, interesting talk at our trauma symposium where we were speaking about open fractures. And my first question for you is, can you summarize the management of open fractures in pediatric patients, please?
1: in a short sentence is that you should treat them exactly the same way as you treat your adult patients given that a, a certain a high proportion of the listeners to this will probably be either in mixed or adult practice uh, i don't see that, that there's any reason to change the treatment algorithms that they would use in their adult patients i mean that, i've got to be slightly cautious about saying that because there are differences but in terms of of organizational uh, parameters th- there is little difference as far as i can see the management as far as i'm concerned is primarily to sterilize skeletal and soft tissue injury because if you don't do that then any attempts at reconstruction or stabilization healing etc will be compromised so the first step that you've got to get over is you've got to be absolutely meticulous in your clinical stroke surgical practice to make sure that the bone and soft tissue bed is clean the types of open fractures that we deal as paediatrics, with as paediatric surgeons are probably slightly different. In our unit, we looked over a four year period and they've divided very clearly into grade one, low energy forearm fractures and grade three, high energy tibial fractures. But if you don't respect. The initial stage of management, then you run into all sorts of problems with both types of fractures. So it asked your question, it's the same as with adults. It's BOA back press guidelines, it's prompt uh, wound and bone inspection in an operating theater by surgeons that are capable of making decisions. That's usually in pediatrics, that's usually consultant, plastic surgeons, consultant orthopedic surgeons. Removal of all dead, devitalized and infected tissue, both bone and soft tissue and if necessary, temporizing so that you can return with a plan to definitively reconstruct when you've demonstrated sterility. The reason I'm so zealous about that is the, the difficult cases that we come across. When you drill down onto the decision-making process, it's usually the early decisions and the early management that, that, that possibly has contributed to a suboptimal outcome. That's
0: um, a really good summary of, of everything that you covered. I found it particularly interesting during the talk where you were mentioning the American Posner survey in 2015, yeah. um, and that there was no consensus. You went on to describe it where you spoke about washouts in the EDN in the operating room and rates of non-union. And, and that was a very interesting bit of the talk. Do you mind covering that for our listeners? Yeah, it's, it's
1: really, it's, I, I don't like decorating simple messages with, with literature, And the reason I chose that paper for it was for a particular set of figures that they published. You're right. There was, no, it was, first of all, it was an awful study. It was just basically, it was one of those questionnaire-based things that, you know, what do you do? Uh, You know, what do you reckon? No particular structure to it. But what came out of it was what they were publishing for open forearm fractures, whether managed in the operating room or the emergency department, was an infection rate in double figures. Now, because it's a very superficial study, I'm nervous about anyone reporting infection rates of 10 15 percent because if that translates to a deep infection a bone infection etc then you're in real trouble and so what i got out of it was there was there is no consensus and contemporary management is suboptimal for forearm fractures for open forearm fractures and i, I use that to illustrate that this is not good enough you know you'll get away with it in in quite a number of patients but the ones that end up with deep bone infection, they're in real trouble. And it's, you know, it's limb altering. If you've got a forearm that's got ongoing osteomyelitis, it is never going to be the same again. You, you may get it to, to heal, but you won't get it to pronate, supinate, et cetera. It will require an awful lot of additional treatment and it is to be avoided at all costs. well at all costs at most costs
0: (laughs) now i really like the mantra that you gave us you know it's very clear from your um, answer just then that we need to follow the guidelines and there is no difference really when it comes to adults and children you know when it comes to open fractures we have to sterilize stabilize and reconstruct i believe that those are the three key words in your talk now in terms of a best practice algorithm and Using that term that you you spoke about confirmation bias when you're in the operating yeah. room, would you mind just covering what that algorithm is for you
1: yeah it's 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 just an observation that I've fallen upon and that when I'm operating on open fractures or infected bone there there is a a bias in all of us to be conservative small c to Look at a bone and convince yourself that it's actually all right because your bias is you don't want to fill the hole up. And I know I recognize that in me you know some time ago when I was less confident about reconstructing bone defects, then I would be cautious about removing bone which may be either dead or devitalized or or infected. Now, latterly, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but I'm certainly more aggressive. And the impression I get is that when I'm training people to do it and I ask, what do you do now? There's always a reluctance to continue. I know in my mind, I'm not even nearly finished, but there's people who are looking and going, yes, that'll be okay, that'll be okay. And I'll point to someone and say, what about that? Oh, that'll be okay. When I know that that's, it's dead, it's, you know, it's chalky, dead bone and it's got to come out. And so I think we fool ourselves into being less aggressive than we need to be now i operate very um closely with our colleagues in plastic surgery so when i've done the bone bit i stand back and i watch them do exactly the same with the soft tissues they have no difficulty about excising devitalized soft tissue it makes you know it makes my heart stop It makes my hair go white because i think god that's just so aggressive but because they're not concerned about reconstructing it they will be more aggressive and so what i said in the in the talk slightly tongue-in-cheek is if people aren't screaming at me to stop i haven't gone far enough
0: Mm. and i I know that
1: there'll be people here there'll be impressionable people listening to this i'm 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 saying that with as many caveats as you as you need to make it to make it (laughs) sensible you can edit that out if you like but you know what i mean
0: i suppose that you know you're absolutely clear the people that need to be in the room when you are doing that initial debridement, consultant plastic surgeon, consultant orthopaedic surgeon. Um, and you were very clear, you know, that's that's what we're paid to do and that's what you expect and what a child should expect when they come in with that sort of an injury.
1: That's what we do because we are very privileged in that we have that, that set up. We don't have to make a case for it. And it doesn't have to be. The rank is irrelevant. But it's got to be someone who is experienced enough to make decisions themselves without having to refer and the example I gave is what I don't feel comfortable about is the situation where someone's doing a wound exploration they've got a telephone balanced on their shoulder they're describing the wound to someone who's telling them what to do and then they're doing it to me that is arcane. it's no longer acceptable practice and there should be the person who's on the end of the telephone should be in doing the case Again, that's very easy for me to say, you know, I live 12 minutes away from our hospital. You know, my personal best is about 10 minutes, you know, front door to operating room. For me, it's not a big deal. I absolutely get it that, that I work in a very rarefied environment. It's easy for me. But, you know, you ask the question and that would be my sort of utopian mm. royal infirmary answer for you.
0: And, and you've got the data to back it up. I believe you're publishing a series in the BJJ yeah. soon, which has very impressive um union rates. I think it was a hundred percent at, at yeah. twelve weeks or something. And, yeah, and- we're
1: publishing that in the next, I think the next edition of Bone and Joint Journal. Yeah. Um now we have a hundred percent union, we have zero infection, we have alignment to within a couple of degrees of, of true in both planes. Now we have gone to extraordinary lengths to achieve that. There's a lot of people who've had free tissue transfer. Uh, you know it's it's it will be criticized for being overzealous. Now we can't answer that, it's, 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 a, it's an observational study, but what we have been able to do in a group of 30 plus patients is get them all healed without infection, and that's considerably better than historical equivalent case series. So we're not saying in this paper, you should do this, we're saying we have done this and this is the outcome. It's for others to judge whether it's appropriate for their circumstances.
0: Sure. Following on from that and moving away from open fractures, if we're talking about trauma in kids specifically. Do you feel that paediatric trauma networks work?
1: I'll answer it in, in, in two ways. The, the, the model answer is yes, I do. I work in a paediatric major trauma centre. And it has allowed us to organise our clinical and operational resource to deal with trauma as it comes. We have a steady stream of major trauma. We also look after our own local trauma and it keeps us busy. So that allows us to improve our clinical management our decision making our operative skills our teaching it allows us to have social inventory which is appropriate to whatever's going to come in and it's allowed us to be very effective now that's fine for us but we take from a huge geographic area and so if you have a an injury in cornwall which is you know a way down the m5 and beyond that is not particularly convenient for the For the family that's attached to the injured child. So, whilst in some respects it's a very, very good system, there are parts of it which are possibly socially suboptimal. Um, But it has allowed us to, it's allowed us, I think, to improve the trauma management. It's allowed us to look very critically at our results because we've got a very, you know, with the TARN system, we can look at what we're doing, we're audited. We can't hide behind suboptimal treatment, and it allows us to uh, to improve the treatment that we're giving. Mm. So I I think they work. Now it doesn't matter what I think. If you look at the trauma figures uh, for the UK trauma deaths for the UK, there are several waypoints from you know, from the mid eighties to now, and one of them was the, the uh, head injury guidelines that that made a huge difference. But the thing that's made a, 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 a visible difference in improved mortality on uh, the graph is when they introduced MTCs for adults. I don't know if it's not the same for kids, but so MTCs improve mortality in the UK, and it's plain to see. So in that respect, is if I if I. If I was involved in a a big pileup, I'd want to go to an MTC. If one of my, I don't my kids are adults now, but if one of my kids was involved in a a big accident, I'd want them to go to an MTC.
0: And what do you think is going to be the next big thing when it comes to improving outcomes for paediatric patients?
1: I think part of it has to be injury prevention and education. We've seen during COVID that the... I'll be cautious because we haven't got the figures. We, we will look at them, but the impression is that the, both the sort of pedestrian trauma, the, the the local you know falling off playground equipment type trauma, and the major trauma has dropped visibly during COVID. That's because people aren't engaging in activities that puts them at risk. So that means that the key to it must be when they go back to those activities, if they can be made safer then that will have a huge impact on paediatric trauma. So I think that's got to be part of it. Um, The other thing that may make a big difference is the research that the paediatric community in the UK are doing will, I think, evidence what we are doing for trauma. It started on more straightforward um, fracture patterns, such as distal radial medial epicondyle, et cetera. But the difference it's made, I think we have now in the UK have got very bright organisers, you know, in, in our environment, it's, it's Dan Perry in the adult world, Matt Costa, they are able to focus and harness what I think is the sort of the, the intellectual capacity of the orthopaedic community in the UK. I think it's, it's, it's facile to, to still pretend that we're daft, dull, stupid. We're not stupid. We've all got very good brains. We're just not very good researchers. And I think now we have, in our midst, people who can direct the traffic so that we can produce evidence for the things that we do. And we're at reasonably early stages in paediatrics, but it's improving year on year. And I think that as some of the big population studies come out, that will evidence what we hopefully it will show what we've been doing is is pretty sensible and near the mark. But if it isn't, it will direct us in a way that will improve trauma management going forward.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you for listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's Orthopaedic Section podcast. For more details on our events and speakers, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine's website or follow us on social media using the handle RSM Author.